And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And here we are off again in the springtime, well, not quite the springtime, but the beginning of awards season always seems like springtime. It's like the little the little books have been hiding under the frozen snowbeds uh, during the winter, and now, <laughs> now they're peeping their little... Their little green shoots are coming up, and they're asking for Hugo's. Oh, Gary, that's such. <laughs> yeah, there's there's two points on which that's nonsense. First of all, well, the, the big one is, of course, yeah, it's the beginning of award season. It was the beginning of award season weeks ago. We're we're running late. You know, I wow. mean, we're, we're, we're knee-deep in awards season. There are awards have been presented. There are ballots that are out. The British Science Fiction Association's nominees came out 62 minutes ago. Um, right. So did the, was it the Stokers came out in the last Stoker nominations week or two? Of weeks ago. We announced the winner and the runners-up to the Crawford Award. We did. Uh, the, um, we have, and the other thing is that there are other things that, you know, we have to pay attention to now uh, before... Well, the Crawford Award this year will be our guest next week, uh, Carmen Maria Machado. And one of the things I always took pride in in running that award is we recognize somebody before they hit it big, before they won a world time. Here's somebody who's won a National Book Critics Circle Award before. So, so now it's not unreasonable in the genre to start paying attention to things like National Book Awards, Pulitzer Prizes, uh, National Book Critics Circle Awards, that has to be folded into our awards season, too, because we're no longer as excluded from those as we might once have been. No, no, nor have we been for some time. It's not been that... I mean, it's been, on, it's been occasional to rare, but you get people winning pushcart prizes and winning other major awards. And, of course, there is the ongoing leakage between mainstream and genre that's been going on for decades and continuing. So there'll be a book that you know, overlaps. There'll be a Michael Chabon novel. There'll be, uh, you know, a, a Lincoln in the Bardo or something, which has, you know, has genre elements or a genre. And, you know, so you'll see that kind of thing over and over, over, over and over again. And, it's ha- you know, and, you know, in fact, it really points towards what probably the major gap in average genre coverage of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and related material is. And that is that, very few places spend a lot of attention covering work of interest to genre that's not published by traditional genre publishers. I think that's changing as well, though. I mean, uh, we have you mentioned the BSA of BSFA award. I think, I think last year that went to Underground uh, Railroad, um, was uh, published in the mainstream, got a lot of attention. Uh, one of the novels that I expect to be under discussion for the genre awards this year is Victor Laval's The Changeling. And here's somebody who clearly is aware, who has a foot in both camps, who's comfortably received both by mainstream literary folk and by genre folk. Um, Carmen Maria Machado is another one. So I, I think more and more there's a sense at which um, uh, what Clute calls Fantastica is not a disabling characteristic for mainstream awards. I think it's it goes beyond that. I think that genre characteristics, features, uh, themes, models, modes, whatever else, have been so factored into society's view of storytelling that people don't question it anymore. You know, um, I mean, sometimes it's stuff that, frankly, always leaked over. I mean, kind of ghost stories, supernatural stuff always overlapped. Uh, rocket ship stories tend not to, and you know, it's hard to imagine too many rocket ship stories, even at this point, getting up for Pulitzer prizes. But you know, everything's changing. You know, it's 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 some it's somebody I'm sure is doing a book on how these ideas migrate into um, comfortably into the mainstream. And time travel, for example, now is seems open season on time travel for any mainstream writer. Dystopia is uh, practically well realistic fiction these days if it takes place in the current America is dystopian fiction so to some extent uh, you, you can't really escape uh, these things but you're right I think rocket ships aren't going to amount to much I think complicated ideas and in, in, involving physics i.e. Greg Egan kinds of thought experiments are never going to be mainstream and uh, probably never should uh, but nevertheless there is a sense it's, it's, it's not just that the barriers are breaking down but that more and more uh, as you say, more of the tropes of science fiction are just 
widely accepted in storytelling. But when you say storytelling, that's another – I'm sounding wildly optimistic for reasons that I don't understand – that storytelling has been devalued in much mainstream literary criticism for decades. Michael Chabon wrote a whole screed about this a couple, 20 years ago, uh, 10 years ago. And now storytelling is becoming – uh, valued again, I think, in, in, in literary fiction. I, I, I think there's still stream of consciousness, um, interior monologue um, kinds of things that uh, used to be con- considered New Yorker stories, but even the New Yorker publishes good tales. The critical thing is we live in a world where the generation that's moving into their 20s grew up watching Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. That's their world. Good point. Yeah. Uh, and and playing uh, world building games, all those uh, sorts of things. So, the, 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 I, yeah, so, yeah, so. They're, going, they're going to. Have, I mean, anybody so, who's twenty now has lived through this, has had their primary kind of you know, period of maturing in the last decade or so, and that's the time of genre superhero television, genre superhero movies, uh, games, culture. Is that you know so much now that you don't even make a distinction between it and science fiction or fantasy? Um, you may be right. I mean, I could I could counter that by saying that my generation grew up with classic fixed fifties monster movies and Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe things. They weren't as large; they weren't blockbusters, but they certainly were part of our growing up. And um, it's. It, it seemed to me that at the time we were making a distinction between those movies and serious movies in the same way we made a distinction between the stuff we read for fun and the stuff we read because it was good for us. The difference, though, as you touch on, though, is, is that today this material, these themes and views are ubiquitous. They're the mainstream of culture. Yes. That's a huge difference. It's not – I mean, yeah, okay, reading 700 issues of X-Men will always be – a geek thing. Watching eight X Men yeah. movies is not. They come out every. You know, That's you, good point. Yeah, you go, yeah, you go see them. And you know, if you're watching eight X Men movies, or you're even just living in a world where you where people around you are typically watching eight X Men movies, it impacts on how you perceive things to fit into story, and increases the ability of you know genre material to be more broadly accepted. And that seems to happen. You know. At least at book length. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I agree, I, but I'm not simply talking about genre material being widely accepted. I'm talking about uh, old-fashioned tale-telling being accepted. And sometimes the superhero movies do that successfully, and sometimes they don't. Um, so the, there, there are two things going on here. One is genre materials versus general culture, literary culture, whatever. You, the other is the value of story versus the value of these sort of made worlds that uh, that characterize the Marvel universe. In other words, there are Marvel movies and and DC movies that actually are pretty good. That because they tell a decent story, the Avengers movies tell a decent story. There are others that are almost incoherent because they're spliced together from various uh, you know prefabricated notes. So in other words, you can have good and bad storytelling in a superhero movie and a science fiction story just as much as you can in, in literary fiction. My, my argument is that story is, story is becoming more central to our experience of culture maybe than it had been for several years. Probably so. Let me ask you a question since it's award season and since you are a, a person who runs an award, a person who pays attention to awards, a person who nominates and votes in awards – how do you approach deciding what to nominate for something? Um, that's a very good question because there are two things. There are things that you feel like you have to nominate because they are major contributions to the field. Um, there are things that you feel – I'm thinking now actually about the Crawford Award because the, the, the book that won – uh, was a, a, a very deserving book, and we'll talk about that next week. There were other books that, for other reasons, I would like to have seen win because they were less well-known. They were less recognized. You wanted to bring something to somebody's attention. Um, so, for example, uh, to go back a few years with the World Fantasy Awards, when uh, Sophia Samatar won it for A Stranger in Alondria, 
which had won, she had won the Crawford Award earlier that year. That seemed to be bringing somebody to, to the world's attention that needed to be brought to the attention. So part of me wants to recognize things that I think ought to be recognized, and part of me wants to recognize things that are just obviously major works in the field. I mean, this year, for example, Stan, Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140 seems like, of course you're going to. Okay, we won't have to get, but you see, I'm, they're, they're, they're the obviously major books in the field, and they're the books in the field where you feel they need the attention and deserve the attention. You're not giving them to them because they're obscure, but because they're very good books that many people may not have thought about. I'm torn on that latter point. I like the motivation behind it, but I'm not sure whether I think that should be a motivation behind it. I am tempted by Paul Kincaid's stated view on choosing works for an award, particularly a science fiction award, and that is that they should be fundamentally excellent as pieces of science fiction and that they should contribute something new or important to the field. Uh, that's his, in his written things online, uh, point on how you select something that's worthy of winning a major award like a Hugo or a Nebula, that you would, as a matter of course, exclude things which were simply excellent examples of something that had already been done. I, I, I'm attracted to that. Similarly, when I'm nominating, I take into account what I think the award I'm nominating should be for. I remember having, le well, not lengthy, but having discussions with my friend Justin Aykroyd, who was a bookseller based in Melbourne. And I remember when they opened officially opened up the Hugos to take fantasy as well as science fiction. And his view was he wasn't going to nominate any fantasy for the Hugos at all because he felt the Hugos were a science fiction award. And originally I felt that was a um, unreasonably restrictionist kind of view that really, since the official definitions for the award had changed or been officially recognized, however you want to look at it, then that's what should follow. However, I have come around to that point of view. I think there are all sorts of places where fantasy gets recognized, and I think there, in fact, are very, very few just science fiction awards. It doesn't mean that anybody else should follow that path, but I will only nominate science fiction for the Hugos now. It's, an, it's, it's something I'd thought about. I'm not going to do it. Um, but the argument, which I think we've talked about before, is that if you look at the, the two most visible awards, uh, well, the, not counting the Nebula, the two most visible general awards that are voted on not by a specific membership, World Fantasy Award does exclude science fiction. But the Hugo Award does not exclude fantasy. So to some extent, you're right. Science fiction is being put at a disadvantage, at least in those two awards. Um, there are books that I think I will nominate this year that are clearly fantasy books. Um, but I have this bias that, yeah, those books are probably going to be on the ballot for the World Fantasy Award anyway. That, that's a dangerous point of view. You know, I've, I've had that conversation before. The truth is, you can never guess what's going to be on the be sure what's going to be on the ballot or the, what's going to win. You you have to go with what you think is best and what your perception of the award is. You know, but the Hugo's are now officially science fiction and fantasy. I've decided I don't agree with that. So for me, philosophically, all I will nominate is science fiction. So that means that a book like, say, Car by John Crowley, which I think should be on the World Fantasy Award ballot and which I think will be on other ballots, will not be on my Hugo ballot. It is not a science fiction book. I have removed it from my personal consideration. Well, that raises another issue, and it's an issue that comes up with a number of novels. It comes up with, uh, oh, Charlie Jane Anders, All the Birds in the Sky, uh, which has magic in it. Ka takes place, the narrative, the frame narrative, takes place in a depleted near-future environment that's very well thought out in terms of a kind of post-apocalyptic environmental disaster scenario, which deals with a character who believes he is talking to a 2,000-year-old crow. Fantasy it's book possible. 2,000 year old crow. Yeah. Oh, the 2,000 year old crow would seem to be a fantasy idea, certainly. Let me ask this My question. Point is, <laughs> yeah, okay. The point is that you can't, really, you can't really draw that kind of a hard line between science fiction and fantasy anymore. In some cases, you can. In many uh, cases, John you can. Kessel, of course, yeah, many cases you can, but not in all cases. 
Enough, Gary. Enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this other question before we get down to what we're going to talk about, which is what we're going to nominate for the Hugos. Which categories do you just close your eyes on and do nothing about now? At the Hugos, there's a million, billion know, categories. I know nothing about the fan categories. Uh, I know some of the fan writers, uh, and there are people who I believe are fan writers, uh, who I regard as, as, as critics or essayists, but that's the category they would fit into. Uh, when you get to other things, uh, even with fanzines and semi-pro zines, I'm vaguely aware of it. And I probably will nominate one thing, maybe in one of those categories. But those are categories where I wait to see what ends up on the ballot, and then I try to learn more. Yeah. Actually, that's probably not an unfair thing as well. There are a few categories where either I'm not emotionally connected to them or where I feel like I'm sufficiently inexpert that I'm happy to allow other nominators to take the lead and then look at what they have done and then decide at, after I've had taken that look whether I still feel I'm in a position to vote based on you know what I've experienced. Uh, I'm not familiar enough with fan art. I'm not familiar enough with most fan writing, though. Like, like you know, as you say, there are many critics and nonfiction writers who get placed in the, non, in, in the fan writer category that I am familiar with their work and I'm quite happy to uh, express an opinion on. I probably won't express any opinion on the dramatic works this year, I don't think, um, because I've seen so many things that they kind of all blur, and half the things that I most want to vote for either don't quite fit the the, the categories or um, just fall into different periods. Like I would vote for um, Anne Hathaway's movie, Colossal, but that's a 2016, not a 2017, even though I only saw it in 2017. And everything else, like I said, just blurs. There's been 3,000 different superhero TV series and movies and things, and there's all just too much of it, Gary. I, I, so then, well, just too much of that. And that's, that's what I – when you talk to the uh, dramatic categories, there's a part of me that thinks, okay, there's no point um, – really, okay, great, super – hugely successful movies – we have no impact on that world at all. I mean, basically, Steven Spielberg doesn't care that he's got a Hugo, and he's never going to. No, on the he other doesn't. Hand, no, he doesn't. But I mean, the thing is, it makes people feel good to do it, so that's fine. Okay, but you mentioned smaller films. One of the films which, it, now that you've mentioned it, that I probably will nominate is, is um, Other Life, the Kelly Eskridge novel, which was turned into a, a film in Australia, which I, I was very, pleas very pleasantly surprised by. Um, and uh, that goes back to my idea of calling attention to things, at least getting things in front of people that they might want to think about uh, rather than uh, you know, giving another award to a, a, another uh, version of Star Trek or the second season of Stranger Things. So the very obvious things that we want yeah, to nominate. Yeah. And look, I wouldn't be surprised if any of those things were there. Um, and let me ask you, what's your feeling about nominating for the new categories? Because there are new and newish categories. There's the genuinely new Hugo category that was only presented last year for the first time, Best Series. And then there's the new Not a Hugo category to join the, you know, the other sort of Not a Hugo category, the Campbell Award, which is the Young Adult Award, which is Not a Hugo. Uh, are you going to be nominating in, in that? I probably will nominate in the young adult category um, because I have a couple of things in mind that uh, really don't fit as well into any other category. Um, and then, if that's, if, I want to follow immediately on about that. Where do you sit on what was, has always been, from my, 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 to my mind, one of the great conflicts with nominating in the Locus Awards, which is what do you do when you've got a book that is young adult, but is a best novel of the year contender. Do you nominate it in both? Do you nominate it in I one? I would do it in both easily. I would have no problem doing that. I don't think I'm going to, but I might. Uh, and yet, and yet, one of the underpinning principles of the Hugo Awards has always been work shouldn't be eligible in both categories. Now, I realize this is not a Hugo, but even so, that's always been that a thing, hasn't it? Um, I, was, that, was that a stated rule for this year? Uh, it's, it's, I mean, you no, could it's take never an been a stated rule. It's been a principle. Um, it's a, exactly. it's been a principle that followed. Okay. Let's, 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 let's take one. Okay. One interesting book that appeared early last year and theoretically could be nominated as best novel, best YA, or best series, and that was Nettie Okorafor's second Benty novel. The third one is out now, but the third one is not eligible because it's a 
2018 book. Uh, 20, yeah. But it's a young adult book. Uh, it's uh, maybe a young adult book. I think it is. It's, a no- it's not quite a novel. So could that be a novella, a series, and a YA? No. Um, it could be... It. I don't know what the conditions surrounding the YA award are, but I would imagine it will have to be over 40,000 words to be eligible for a young adult. It definitely has to be over 40,000 words to be eligible for best novel, and that would rule it ineligible for best novella. Um... It would be ineligible for best series at the moment because there's insufficient word count. It has to have clocked, I think, off the top of my head without looking it up, something like at least 200,000 words of prose. So it is possible, because I believe that the third Binti book is pushing close to full novel length, um, that the combined trilogy of novellas may be, or stories may be, uh, eligible for best series in 2019. But I'm kind of guessing at that because I'm not familiar enough with the length. But I believe, probably improperly, incorrectly, that the second Binti book is actually a still a novella. Mm-hmm. It's tr- it, it is, I, I think. I haven't checked the length of it. But this is what confuses me about the series category. And I may not nominate anything in it uh, simply because I find it so confusing. And... I tend not to think uh, – I, I may be uh, very old-fashioned this way, but I tend not to think of favorite series of books. I tend to think of favorite books. Um, and I, I, I tend to think of things that were conceived as a single war. The Lord of the Rings I don't think of as a series. The Book of the New Sun I don't think of as a series. Um, these were clearly conceived as overarching fictions. The Wheel of Time is clearly a series that's going to go on until – the wheel of time crushes us all beneath it. Well, it's finished. It's over now, Gary. I know it's over now, but it's, it, it, don't bet on that. Don't <laughs> bet on that. Okay. What category are we going to start with since we're not going to start with novel? Well, okay. This is the other thing where I have to defer to you. I've been reading this year, yours, the contents of your year's best. This is where I get most of my ideas about who the Campbell nominees are, what the best short fiction is. What the best novellas might be, although there are more and more standalone novellas. So I think we should start with the short fiction category, which is the one you know most about and I possibly know least about. Yeah. Well, should we start by saying that my nominees for the Campbell will be Aris Benedict, who has a story in my year's best, Kathleen Kayembi, Vina Jimaitmin Prasad, and River Solomon are, are my, my uh, picks for the Campbell this year. Uh, River I've read I've read her novel and I'm I think it's a very good novel I think that's a very interesting author. The other three authors you mentioned I had never read a word of them until I saw your year's best. Yeah, yeah. Now best short. Let's start with best short story. I didn't read a lot of really, really fundamentally innovative new best science fiction short stories. However, I did read ones that I enjoyed very much. So. My nominees will be uh, Tobias Bacall's Zen and the Art of Starship Maintenance, a fabulously entertaining piece of, star- of science fiction fluff that appeared in uh, Cosmic Powers and is in, I think, all the year's bests. Uh, the Martian Obelisk by Linda Nagata, which is a really interesting piece that she wrote for Tor.com. Carl Schroeder's fascinating Bitcoin-y um, alternate economy uh, story, Eminence, uh, Carolyn Joachim's uh, Carnival 9, which is a steampunky, robot kind of story from Beneath Sith of Skies, and Nancy Cress's really smart military SF story, Dear Sarah, from Infinity Wars. Those are my short story picks for the year. The only one that uh, I, I, I had very few, and you've mentioned all but one of them. The one I would add to that, uh, no, there are actually two that I would add to this list, but one I'm still thinking about. The one I would certainly add to the list is Charlie Jane Anders' uh, I Won't Press Charges If You Don't Sue. From it's a novelette. It's a novelette. Okay, I'm corrected. And what about the Samuel R. Delaney story, The Hermit of Houston? Novelette. Is that? Okay, then you've covered everything I had to say about the short story category. Now, this is the point where all of those campaigners out there in the world who listen to the podcast and who worry about such things will say, why do we even have novelette anyway? Let's pretend it's just so we can recognize five other writers. 
I just have to say something in parentheses because I was reading. I'm reading more and more things on on Kindle where uh, I don't have a page count. I don't have I don't have any idea going into a story whether it's going to be a novella, a novelette, or a short story. And it's very interesting to look at stories like that and then go back and find out what the actual lengths were. I don't have a good sense page by page of lengths. You don't even have page. And sometimes I would read a story that felt like a novella because it was long and involved, and I'd come out at the other end and realize it was a short story, and I'd read something that I thought zipped right through the Charlie Jean Anders story. I thought it seemed much shorter than it was because it was very powerful. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, don't forget the difference between 7,500 and 8,000 words is not very much, and it may be that you wouldn't particularly tell. However, and I'm, this is a tip for you, obviously, as a Hugo nominator, it's not something you may not be familiar with, there's this magazine, and every year they publish this recommended reading list, and they put it online, and they divide it into categories, just so you can know the answer to this question. So if you were to go to uh, was it Locus, www.locusmag.com, they would be able to give you guidance on that. Wouldn't that be dead handy? So anyway, novelette. This year, we were bedeviled by think tank fiction projects, by uh, magazine, one-shot magazines, by people publishing fiction who ne- never done it before. Did it all in kinds of special sort of thematic, usually sort of futurist kind of things. There was the weird seat 14C that an airline put out that Catherine Kramer edited that was all about people getting onto and off airplanes and stuff. Somewhere in there, Juno Diaz got clocked by the Boston Globe, the Boston something, to do global dystopias. And in there, there is the fabulous novelette you just mentioned, Don't Press Charges and I Won't Sue, by Charlie Jane Anders, who has matured into one of the most thoughtful and interesting and entertaining science fiction writers working today. And she puts together this fantastic, disturbing, dystopian, gender gnarly kind of story. It was actually one of two or three really great stories she had out this year. But I think, and I think obviously you might agree, it was the best story she had out year, this year. Really, really interesting and, you know, engaging. And, and, and engaging and terrifying, obviously, oh, yes. at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but it worked as, it's just one of the things where I think this merge between science fiction and dystopia is interesting because there were other pieces in that Boston Review by Juno Diaz that frankly to me seemed programmatic that hadn't thought through the idea of dystopia that were uh, some of them were terrifying some of them were surrealistic but they were there seemed to be a choice between writing a good story and writing a kind of scary uh, proleptic warning and the Charlie James Anders story certainly demonstrated that you can have a suspenseful, character-based story, which is also utterly terrifying and viscerally believable uh, in a way. Well, I think I, I think it's a very visceral dystopia, and I suspect a very personal one. You know, my next choice um, is by one of the most interesting writers working today. Not just because they've they write great and intelligent stuff. But because there's, they have the clearest dichotomy that I can think of between their short fiction and their long fiction. Greg Egan wrote a novelette for Tor.com called Uncanny Valley. It's about a, hmm, it's, it's about the, a, a, a person who is actually a cloned reconstruction of another person who's had some of their memories edited out of them and who is attempting to, who, who doesn't have legal personhood, but is still actually a person. It's all about, you know, the what it is to be human kind of thing. Uh, what's fascinating about it, first of all, it's a br- wonderful story, brilliant story by Greg. Uh, what's fascinating about Greg, though, is there is this in- dichotomy between his short fiction and his long fiction. His short fiction is actually really clean and clear and emotionally engaging and powerful. His very, very accessible. He actually wrote another novelette that came out later in the same year in Asimov's, uh, which I put into my year's best, which I also liked very much. And it's equally good, or almost as equally good. Um, the thing about the novels is they are involved and complicated and can be less immediately accessible. If you're not reading Greg Egan, this story, which is on Tor.com right now, and you can go read it, is highly recommended. That's a good point you make, and it was a point that uh, I had not thought about until a couple of 
a few years ago when Karen Burnham did her book on Greg Egan and pointed out that his early short fiction is just very engaging and uh, and, and, and near future and, and it's it's wonderfully uh, one idea per story I think and once you start getting into the novels they become more and more and more complex as he goes on so I think that's been true throughout his career I think it's more I would quibble I think that novels like Quarantine uh, you know the first probably three four actually are fairly accessible but then you begin to click into territory where they become much more involved, where he's really going, I can really delve into you know, quite complicated and complex ideas, and sometimes those are difficult for readers to follow. To click on my next uh, st- uh, pick, and I will now actually perhaps be honest and say, you know, allowing for the fact that I acquired this story and the Greg Egan story, is by Yoon Ha Lee. It was on Tor.com. It's called Extracurricular Activities. It's a space opera. It's political intrigue. It's um, set in the novel of the universe, one of her novels. It's a great story. Really interesting. Like it a whole lot. Loved it when I first read it. Still love it. So highly recommend it. Uh, my next X-Dix pick is from Suzanne Palmer, a writer that I've not read a lot of. She wrote a story called The Secret Life of Bots, which appeared on Clark's World, and is the story about basically bots maintaining a starship and what what goes on around it and their character interaction. Uh-huh. Great story. Great story. Really, really uh, interesting. And that's, that's kind of a classic SF story, a classic very much SF is. story. And it, it, it was very enjoyable in that sense. And it's interesting to look at that in the context with some of the other short fiction. that well, The Yoon Ha Lee story that I read, which was not that one, but the one which is actually in your years best, um, was the same thing. It was, it was well thought out, hard SF, that you know is a much more sophisticated and nuanced version of a story that could have appeared in Astounding fifty years ago, uh, but the same general uh, theme. So, so yeah, I, I, I agree. One thing you mentioned, um, you've mentioned two titles so far, and this is completely parenthetical and probably leads nowhere. But I was looking at some short fiction lists, and I was looking at the table of contents of your year's best, and noticing the number of science fiction titles that are based on titles of other works. The Secret Life of Bots obviously goes back to The Secret Life of Bees. Zen and the Art of Starship Maintenance goes back to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I'm amazed that somebody Toby's age ever read that book, which was a huge thing back in the early 70s. Uh, You've got uh, The Discreet Charm of the Turing Machine, which is a takeoff on a Buñuel movie, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. You've got Crispin's Model, uh, Max Gladstone, which is Pickman's Model. It's probably the third or fourth short story based on Pickman's Model. Is there a thing where science fiction and fantasy writers just feel a need to appropriate titles from classic short fiction? You're writing a lot of short stories. You've got to come up with titles from somewhere, Gary. All right. And and some things, I guess, just echo. You know, it's like Zen and the Art of uh, Motorcycle Maintenance. It wouldn't surprise me if Toby Buckle hadn't read the Robert Persig novel. But it wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he had either. Um, but I could, it, it's a kind of rhythm of a name that's kind of like out there because it's been around so long. And you, you play with it. That's what you do. My final novelette pick is from one of my very, 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 very favorite new writers that isn't in my year's best for a couple of reasons we won't go into here, but could have been. Uh, nearly one. Um, is We Who Live in the Heart, which was published on Clark's World and is the story about a group of people living in the nasal passages of giant um, sky whales. Yeah, as you do. And the more I've thought about it over the last couple of months, what I really like about it is it's really inventive and thoughtful and pushing what we do and what we see. I I think Gardner picked it up for his years best, and it certainly belongs in that thing. And, I mean, Kelly, with a very small body of work, really, has established herself amongst my favorite writers. I mean, we talked the other, you know, not long ago about uh, Gods, Monsters, and the Lucky Peach, and we've talked about other work of hers in the past. She's just written a new story for me. I just love her work, and I really like the story, and I think it would be a worthy Hugo nominee. Excellent. So we're into the novelette category now. By the way, that's you didn't mention her name fully, but that's Kelly Robson we're talking about. Yes. Not any one of the other Kellys. No, well, that's true. There are other Kellys out there. Uh, look, 
I've thought about editing an anthology of stories just by people named Kelly, and it wouldn't be that hard. I'm sure that people have thought before that there should be a story somewhere by James Patrick Kelly Link, by <laughs> Henry James Patrick Kelly Link. I don't know. Um, okay, I'll stop. Good man. Do you have any novelettes to add? No, I don't, because okay. I pay no attention. To, I pay no attention to these links until I have to. For the actual, <laughs> okay. which I look well, then let's kick out to the perhaps more obviously high profile at the moment category, that what they would call not quite the big one, but the the, the short fiction big one, best novella stories seventeen and a half thousand words to forty thousand words in length. Gary, why don't you lead off? Do you have any novellas on your list? Well, um, where do I have? I do have a list. Uh, I, you, you'll have to check out the uh, length on this for me. First thing I have on my list is Passing Strange by Ellen Clages. Which is a novella. It is under 40,000 words in length. Excellent. Um, which I thought was her best uh, best work for adults. Um, I think it is the best thing she's written at length. Yes. Okay, that's pretty much saying the same thing. Um that was one. Benty Home, I suppose, would be one, although it's the middle volume of a, of, of a three-part series. Um, there are other things that probably are not as widely read as, uh, as they might be, and this would be excluded from your uh, rule anyway, but there was a K.J. Parker, a couple of K.J. Parker novellas that came out during the year. Uh, one of which I liked was called Mightier Than the Sword, both from Subterranean. I don't have a word count. Uh, but as long as they're under 40,000, why would they be excluded? Oh, no, I say they were excluded by your science fiction Oh, rule. the fantasy thing, yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Well, my picks in this category kick off with Christopher Rose, The Border State, the follow-up to his The Voluntary State, which was published in his collection Telling the Map Stories, which is one of my very, 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 very favorite stories of the year, which I loved very much. Uh, it's smart and thoughtful and interesting and has that what he christopher has a wonderful writing voice and he embodies it in this terrific story which i hope people you know like people will get a chance to read and consider you've mentioned passing strange there's all kinds of conflicts in, in in of interest in mentioning passing strange because i acquired it i edited it ellen's a dear friend but nonetheless it belongs on my hugo ballot it is not the, an innovative piece of science fiction. It's probably one of the few points where I break from my science fiction rule because really it's kind of literary fantasy stuff. You know, there's no mechanism for the time. In fact, for the time shifts in it, not even the time travel. It's got time shift in it. But I, I really do love it very much, and I will be nominating it for the Hugo. I am also going to nominate Dave Hutchinson's Akadi, which is published by Tor. Yeah, that's true which is a 25,000 or so long word space opera that ends up in a rather chilling conclusion, which has thrown some people, but which I liked. And I, I, I mean, I both loved the, if you like, the optimistic space opera-ish future that he sketched out and appreciated what he did with it in a very intelligent kind of story that I won't spoil. Um, I'm also going to nominate, in that supernatural science fiction-y horror kind of space, Caitlin Kiernan's Agents of Dreamland, which I originally read a, a billion years ago in uh, as a manuscript fragment on her Serenia Digest uh, service, but which was published by Tor.com and which I acquired and edited. And, you know, like, suck it, I'm picking that because, hey, I just really, 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 really like it. I love Caitlin's work. I think this is amongst her best. It's great. And my final pick is one where the eligibility may confuse people a little bit, but Sylvia Moreno-Garcia wrote a really lovely novella that came out as a Kickstarter-ish kind of project initially, and will come out in a print version from Innsmouth 3 Press called Prime Meridian, a story of a Latin American woman who has contacts with a aging film star and who dreams of going to Mars and may go to Mars. And it's a wonderful story. Gardner picked it in for, for his year's best, so that it'll be available there. Uh, I think, I don't know whether Rich actually put it in his year's best, but certainly one of the very, very best long stories of the year. And there were others. I mean, there were certainly others, but those are the ones that are going on my ballot at the moment. Let's go to another category, which we skipped over before we got into the fiction categories, which always is confusing to me and maybe more confusing than usual this year, and that is best-related 
book? If there's only one, um, can we just vote for one and just make it easy? Uh, I would go with, okay, we're probably going to say the same thing, which is Paul Kincaid's by uh, Paul Kincaid, which you edited and acquired, no conflict of interest, but still a wonderful it's perspective, a very, really but wonderful there's, book. There's, there's a book that's, uh, the, the, the Nat Siegeloff book on Harlan Ellison, The Lit Fuse, has gotten hated a lot it. of attention. Hated it. It's not really about science fiction. It's about, uh, it, it's useful in that it brings together a lot of Harlan's own memoirs from his introductions and letters and so forth and so on. It tells you almost nothing about his science fiction, I agree. And it's not a book about science fiction. But here's my question about this category and about the other categories. Uh, where does Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology fit into the Hugo Ballot? It's a short story collection, Gary. It doesn't fit at all. Is it a short story collection or is it it's a retelling of, of mythology? Uh, it's not original stories. Uh, it's basically putting a nonfiction or classic text into Neil Gaiman's prose. Uh, could you argue that that's a related book because it's a, it's not original stories at all? I would not. Okay. I don't think I would either. But I think it's going to show up somewhere on the ballot somehow. I don't think it should. I think that okay. Neil is wonderful and has a cabinet full of Hugos, and I think he will probably get another cabinet full of Hugos. But I think because there is not a best collection category – doesn't belong there. I think it may it may be on the world fantasy ballot, and that would be fine. But that's my take on it. Okay, I was, I was curious because I was wondering what it is in terms of these categories. I've got um, a couple of other so, things that will make my best related work category. Though, okay. Gary. I mean, for all that I want to, I mean, if it was, if it was me, I would just write out the, the the plaque now, whack it on the award, give it to Paul Kincaid, move along. But. I actually read Sleeping with Monsters, which is Liz Burke's uh, collection of essays and material, and it's really good and is a very worthy Hugo nominee. Uh, I also read uh, Alex Pierce and Mimi Mondale's book, Luminescent Threads, Connections to Octavia Butler, which has a lot of you know, worthwhile material in it and I would recommend to people. So that will be on my Hugo ballot. And the toss-up for the final... Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, one other book that I edited, that I actually was not involved in the initial acquisition of that came from the University of Illinois Press was D. Harlan Wilson's book on J.G. Ballard, which is the other critical book that appeared during the year. Uh, I still think that in terms of uh, Paul's book on banks, it's, it's the major book on banks. It probably will continue to be the major book on banks. So to that extent, it's the most important nonfiction book about a science fiction writer published during the year, and I have no hesitation to say that. Yeah. The two other books I would put into the mix are odd books. Well, one actually, I think, is yeah, in the frame, uh, Not So Good a Gay Man by Frank M. Robinson, which is his autobiography, which is a fascinating book. And well, it is fascinating. Yeah. And then there's Omar Rayan's art book, Goblin Market, which is definitely falls into that weird best-related category. I mean, Spectrum art books, one, one Hugo's and all that kind of thing. And this is, this yeah. is the category where they win, so there's that. I'm now going to, because of where we are in our podcast and how long this next bit is going to take, I'm going to shoot it to one final category unless you want to beat something else. We'll end with best novel. Are you ready to go to best model yet? Or have you got something else you want to cover before we go there? I don't think this year. We, we talked about the young guy. Did you want to mention anybody you're nominating for the Campbell Award? I already did. I started off with that. But I will tell you what I'm nominating okay. for the Young Adult Award if you want. Okay. The books that to, to go over, not too quickly... Uh, James Bradley's very fine post-apocalyptic YA, The Silent Invasion, will be on my list. I greatly enjoyed Sarah Reese Brennan's In Other Lands, which came out from Big Mouth House. My very favorite, well, my second, mm, a close tie for my most favoritist YA novel of the year was Frances Harding's terrifically wonderful A Skinful of Shadows. She is a fabulous writer, and this is another fabulous book from a fabulous writer. Um, I greatly enjoyed Nedia Korofor's Akata Warrior, the follow-up to Akata Witch, and I think it would be a super, super worthy nominee. I adored Philip Pullman's uh, The Book of Dust, La Belle Sauvage, and believe that belongs on the ballot. And I'm tossing up as to whether I think The Riverbank by Kids Johnson is YA or not. If I think it is, then it belongs on the ballot. And if not, it just belongs on the World Fantasy ballot, so I'm just sort of going around in my head about that. Those are the ones I'm thinking about. That was another one I was going to ask you about as well. The other question that I had, uh, 
which I probably will put on the ballot is is uh, Sam Miller's The Art of Starving. Great book. Terrific writer. And I envy you because you have the galley to the new one. Uh, I do, and it's fa- it's very different. It's it's mm. really uh, it's 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 closer in the direction of Annalee Newitz. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. It's hard science fiction, or at least near future science fiction, in a way that's very different from The Art of Starving, which was a very powerful book. I had a Cotter Warrior on my uh, list as well. And the other one, which i not decided about, because again, we're talking about the end of a series, was Paolo Bacicalupi's Tool of War, the third in his Shipbreaker sequence. Mm, which I confess uh, I've not read yet, so I don't have an opinion of. But I would imagine it's great. Paolo's not only a terrific writer, but he's one of those writers who is getting better and better as he continues, mm. so I've got no reason to believe it wouldn't be wonderful. So that's so, that would up my YA ballad. Then as George R. R. Martin would say, time for the big one, the big McGillar. Best novel. And I'm not going to flag what I think should win initially, and I would encourage you not to, but what is in the scope for you as a winner? Oh, sorry, as, a, as, as, as your ballot. Okay, I've got a lot of things on this list. I've got six. And, okay, the, the, the two which I think are likely to get the most attention are Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140 and Anna Lee Newitz's Autonomous. I would agree with that, and I agree they're both super worthy nominees, and they're both on my ballot. Uh, we've talked at length about them before, so we don't need to go into them in too much detail here for, for listeners, but absolutely, uh, Autonomous as a first novel is a fabulous achievement. It has some flaws, uh, structurally, but I think it's a really good book. Mm-hmm. And I, my my love of New York 2140 is widely known. Now, I have other things on my list that are fantasy novels. So sure, yeah, go for it. Yeah, no, no, go for it. It's well, fine. Okay, uh, the the others which I would have uh, thought about uh, certainly John Crowley's Ka, which is, I think, a great novel. I mean, I think it's a great novel apart from categories. Uh, I think you can. There are elements of science fiction in it, but as we've talked about before, if you have one fantasy element, one little fantasy element, it's no longer a science fiction book. If you have a bunch of science fiction elements in a fantasy book, it's a fantasy it's book. It's still a fantasy. So basically, it's fine. There, there's science fiction in it. Um, there are other things that I thought were very interesting, and, and I hope will be on the list, uh, but there are definitional problems. There's a definitional problem with one of the books I really like, Nina Allen's Rift, The Rift, uh, which it's possible to read as not being science fiction at all. But it's not possible to read it without recognizing that there is science fiction in it. I choose to read it as science fiction. I think it's an amazing achievement. I think Nina is a wonderful writer, and it's on my ballot. Okay. What about – let's just try this out. There are two major moon novels this year, John Kessel's The Moon and the Other and – um, Luna Wolf Moon, the the, the second um, of the, uh, tr- the big, uh, yeah right. Of, uh, um, of- that was tricky for me. I I like both novels very much. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Ian McDonald's work, but I let Luna Luna New Moon Wolf Moon drop just off my ballot, and the Moon and the other makes my ballot. It's uh-huh. it's both a terrific book, a thoughtful book. And it's John coming back at novel length after t- two decades. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, that would make my, my ballot almost certainly. Let me throw a couple of other odd ones out. Um, one is, uh, which I think is, I, I do, I, assuming it's eligible, but one novel that I liked a lot and I don't think has gotten that much attention was Karen Tidbeck's Amaka, which had been published in Sweden in 2012, I think. But this I think is it's the first eligible. Inc- yeah. Okay. Um, and that's, again, depending on how you read it, is either very bizarre science fiction or fantasy or something in between, a kind of linguistic fantasy. It's a world based on language. Mm-hmm. Uh, with no, but all the details of the world work out as science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's uh, another question. And the other one related to that, which has a lot of surrealism, a lot of kind of phantasmagorial, phantasmagorical imagery, that sometimes looks like science fiction and sometimes as Jeff Vandermeer's born. Yeah. That would be a very worthy nominee. I'm sure that's not on my list. I would be more likely, I think, to put it on my fantasy list, but I'd have to think about that somewhat. 
Mm. So do you have another? Yeah, I do. I've got two other books that haven't come up yet. I, w- I mm-hmm. intend to rec- uh, nominate uh, Paul McCauley's latest novel, Austral, which is mm-hmm. his uh, climate change novel based in Antarctica, featuring the genetically altered the genetically altered woman uh, who's taking a trek across a, a transformed Antarctica, and I think is a terrific book and well uh, worth nominating. And I truly believe it's shameful that Paul McCauley's never won a best novel Hugo. So That's I'm stuff. absolutely behind that. And my other one's a left a left field pick, Gary. Uh, one that you've not read, because I know you've not read it, even though it's on the Locus recommended reading list. And it is Exit Pardon me, Exit West by Mosin Hamid. Which is a wonderful book. Uh, uh, a, a genre writer or non genre writer sort of drifting into uh, genre territory with this this sort of tale of refugee and refuge and escape and stuff. It's a great great book. So that's 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 my that's my list. Okay, that sounds – we're pretty much um, in agreement. I mean one of the books I'm thinking about, even though its conception is not terribly original, is River Solomon's Un- Unkindness of Ghosts. Yeah, uh, be worth it's an author I know nothing about. It's a generation starship tra- tale. It's in many ways a novel that ought not, ought not to work because its analog slavery is so blatantly obvious from the beginning. But it's so detailed and – felt and visceral and the characters are so uh, believable this is a good example of uh, of a novel which by what it focuses on by character relationships by class consciousness by race things that are uh, uh, not necessarily new and things like a generation starship story which certainly is not new and the idea of classes dividing themselves and but it's just a very, very well done something. Can I say it added something new to the idea of science fiction, according to Paul Kincaid's? Sure, Probably yeah. not. Yeah. But it really yeah. does something interesting. Uh, and in a similar sense, I think uh, Cameron Hurley's The Stars of Legion does something interesting within the framework of a space opera. Uh, it's, it's very visceral. It's very violent. Uh, it's It has no male characters in it. Um, and it's uh, it's interesting for that reason. Other than that, the things I would have had probably on my list, and I'm still thinking about this, uh, were fantasy novels. I would have probably included um, The House of Binding Thorns, for example. Um, or uh, By Elliot de Bodard. By Elliot de Bodard, who is somebody... And this is something, when, when a, somebody who writes such good science fiction starts a fantasy trilogy, do you give her a pass because she's a really good science fiction writer anyway? I, 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 I don't give her a pass for anything. I think she's so good that you just want to read her work. And the other one, the other one which I would probably might put on my list is Victor Laval's Changeling, a fine book from a fine writer. I mean, and I expect I pretty well. I put it. I expect it to be in uh, the frame for the world fantasy, but I don't know for I think sure. It's, it's more it's, likely the world fantasy award winner. Right. And of course, there's a no. handful of people that are books that are frankly likely to make the ballot. At the expense of any number of our choices, I sure would be, good. I'll genuinely be surprised if Provenance by Anne Leckie doesn't end up on the ballot. I'll genuinely be surprised if the new Nora Jemison book doesn't end up on the, on the ballot. Mm. And I would not be surprised if Yoon Ha Lee's second book ends up on the, the ballot. I wouldn't be surprised either, and we should probably, I should at least make excuses that I haven't read any of those. So I, mm. the only reason they're excluded from my ballot is I don't know those books yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is we have until month. We have another month or so, don't we? No, we don't. That was last year, Gary. We've read everything from last year. We're going to read, that's, haven't we? <laughs> that's, Do you have any well, time no. to read any twenty seventeen books now? Really? No, you're, you're absolutely right. That's that's one of the problems with being under deadlines. <laughs> it's like I mean, for everybody else out there, go read Provenance by Anne Leckie. Go read. The uh, Nora Jemison series, it's terrific. It's already won two Hugo Awards. It probably doesn't need a third. Yeah. Maybe it will get best series. You know, who knows? It would be eligible, I believe. Um, and, you know, there are other things that fall into those sorts of categories. Uh, but, you know, I think that's sort of a, a good lot. I mean, I think that's, I feel like you and I are of a similar enough mind on what is of, ex- of excellence and what is, you know, something you could consider for nominating, that we've at least given people a Cood Street overview of what might make a Hugo ballot. 
Well, we have our biases, and if anybody is still listening to this podcast at all, they know <laughs> that our biases tend to be a little bit literary. They tend to be a little bit diverse. They tend to recognize a lot of classic tropes in science fiction. But at the same time, uh, we go back to the one thing that we both had as kind of, okay, almost knee-jerk reactions, which was Kevin Stanley Robinson's New York 2140. It's what, what I liked about it was it's not Kim Stanley Robinson just doing Kim Stanley Robinson. It's no, his it's finding a new way to write post-apocalyptic kind of thing. It's, uh, it, it's not accurate to describe it as a dystopian novel, um, although environmentally I suppose it is. But he's doing something new. He's engaging with the field. And the same thing is true with – you mentioned Paul McCauley, for example. And I know Austro because he had done The Elves of Antarctica, which I had read. Um, and it's a new way of thinking about environmental change in a new kind of setting. So he's not just doing the Quiet War series over and over again. He had a very successful series going for a long time. This is something new. So when you and I talk about older, more familiar writers, uh, in each case I think we've named writers who are doing something a little bit more interesting, a little bit more experimental, a little bit more risk-taking uh, than, uh, than they needed to. Which has got to be something that you want to recognize, or at least I, I want to. I mean, I think that New York 2140, frankly, well, I would like to see it win the Hugo Award. I think it is a major, major, major book from one of our very best writers at the top of his form, you know. So I would be deeply disappointed if it doesn't make the ballot and would be very, very happy if it won, which doesn't mean that I wouldn't be happy if other books won, but I would be very, very happy. And yet that is, I guess, where, where we sit with these things. And yet there are other things we could have talked about. There are other writers who deserve increasingly to be mentioned regularly in this space. There are high-quality books. I mean, you talked about fantasy books uh, that could definitely come into the frame. Uh, I would be surprised just because I don't think it's in the frame, but it certainly would be worthy. The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter by Theodora Goss. Would, would, would be a possibility. Frankly, Daryl Gregory's Spoonbenders, which is terrific, would be worthy. Some people are going to think about Lincoln and the Bardo by George, George Sanders. You know, it's like there's a lot of stuff out there. Well, one oh. of the things that uh, I think this may be the difference. Uh, when we're looking at science fiction, we're looking at something new. We're looking at a new way of looking at things. Or, or an, an author. It's very easy for an established author to return to their greatest hits, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, when we're looking at other categories, we're looking at when, when you admit things like fantasy, then you have what I consider just outstanding performances. I mean, one of the things we did not mention in the novella category uh, was Jeffrey Ford's The Twilight Pariah, mm. which is just a terrific version of a fairly familiar kind of story. After all, there's a abandoned house in the woods and a bunch of young people are digging. <laughs> it, it just sounds like the beginning of any number of horror movies, but it's so yeah, character. I expect uh, to see it on the World Fantasy ballot, definitely. Yeah, you know, I'd be surprised if it wasn't. You know, there's a lot of right. stuff. So, look, it, it was as always one of those years where there was more stuff that that you could read than you possibly had time to. You know, and I can think of. I mean, we're talking about related books. Suddenly, I'm thinking. You know, we missed Gregory Manchester put out a terrific, uh, heavily illustrated novel called Above the Timberline, which I've definitely belongs on a best-related work yeah. ballot and which I would you know, encourage everybody to go and seek out. Wonderful, beautiful book, great art, interesting story, a first novel technically, even though I don't think it got recognized as such. So, you know, there's that. There are interesting other first novels. It, was a, it was, really was a pretty good year. But we should end. We should. Because, well, because the Hugos come out, I have to be, you, know, you have to get your nominations in middle of next month. About the 16th or 17th of March, I think it is. Right. We've got about a month from now to, to, to read the things you haven't read so far. And if I can get back to some of these things, I will. But, you know, there are things that you and I have never thought of. You mentioned a couple of podcasts ago that the best book of 2018 will be one you don't even know about yet. I hope so, yeah. And I what are you reading right now? What, right what are you reading now, this you, minute? Uh, this very minute, I'm, I'm, I'm between two books. One is... Uh, Blackfish City, which is a Sam Miller science fiction novel, uh, and the other is an odd four novella collection between Paolo Bacigalupi and The Tangled World, half of which was published like 10 years ago by Subterranean as two standalone novellas. 
So I'm anxious to see how this thing melds into a kind of book, if not a novel. Huh. Well, I'm reading the, the English translation of Frank, Frankenstein in Baghdad by Armand Sadawai, which is really interesting, which is uh, the, the Frankenstein story put in a war-torn Iraq. And uh, I think it is, a, a, so far, is a terrific book, and if it holds that up, will be one of the more interesting books of the year. Uh, and there's a lot of others, a lot of others that are coming, you know, that haven't sort of show, you know, put their head above the parapet yet. We've talked about Pride and Prometheus by John Kessel. Um, right. There's the next Dora Goss book, which we talked about. Uh, and there will be more and more, yeah. Gallagher but with that... But with that, we were, now we're getting back into 2018, so we should probably cut our losses before we start blathering about next year's Hugo's. Exactly. And I suppose we could finish with a traditional Coon Street you know, note, first of all, where... We point out that we're we're both eligible for best editor this year, Gary. You for your work at the University of Illinois. You hadn't thought about that, had you? I've never thought about that. But no, well, you are. Um, and me for my work. Uh, this this podcast, if you have found any value in it, is eligible for the Hugo Award. So you could choose to, or you could not, as sort of warms your heart. Uh, I will say, read widely, vote for what you love. Don't be shy to vote. I have to nominate and vote. And don't feel self-conscious if you feel you might be the only one nominating this book because every book deserves somebody nominating it for something. No, they don't, Gary. No, they really don't. Oh, no, they don't. no, really none, 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 none. But I, I, I applaud the principle. Uh, you, you, should vote, you should nominate and vote for the stuff that you love. So, yes. Anyway, on that, thank you very much. We will be back next week with a, with a new friend, uh, and we will do our best to sort of keep getting podcasts out to you semi-regularly. All right. Until next week, this is the Good Street Podcast. Indeed.